0: you're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Well, two Sundays ago we began a series in the book of Genesis, and um, my preparation these weeks has been equal parts exciting and intimidating. Um, there's so much in these first few chapters, it's hard to know uh, where to stop and where to spend some time uh, because this is not only a foundation for the rest of the Bible, this is a foundation for the matters of life. And that we learn some things about God in the very beginning um, that help us through the rest of life. They lay the foundation. I mean, you think about the song that was just sung, there's one thing God can't do and that's stop loving you. You know the reason that you can have confidence that there's only, that God can do just about everything um, because Genesis 1, because it tells us that God has all power. We've already seen how God exists and, and we've seen how God has a plan. We talked about some of those things last week. I don't want to rehash all of it, but just to remind you that the book of Genesis was written um, by, by Moses, compiled by Moses. Uh, as a way to give the children of Israel a glimpse uh, back to the beginning of their God. Not the beginning of God, but their beginning with God in Genesis 1. Uh, They had been in Egypt for over 400 years. They'd been influenced by the the pagan culture. And, And God wanted them to make sure that they started back at the beginning so that they understood who they are, who God is, and who they could become as a nation. Because their minds had been had been affected for over 400 years by that pagan culture in which they were living. And last week, uh, The last two weeks, we've be, we, we started in verse 1 about how God at the beginning is where you have to go to in order to begin your story right. You can't fully understand anything if you don't catch the beginning. And then last week, we went day by day through the creation account and saw how God exists and, and God has a plan and God has all power. You know, I want to go back to that first point that we talked about last week, God exists, and and just remind you that we see it in God's word, but we also see that in creation all around us. The existence of God is proven when anyone without preconceived notions or ideas just simply looks around. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Romans 1 states something similar when it says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Folks, let me just say it this morning, there's enough evidence just by looking at creation to know that something with that kind of design and that kind of order and cooperating systems had to be put there by a designer. God, exa- I thought I'd get a bigger amen than that, but you know, it's true. Hey, just because it's snowing outside, and we, don't, and we were maybe down a few. Let me ask you, men especially, let's get engaged in the service this morning. You know, God's power and his ability to simply speak and create is incredible. His, his plan is revealed in how he creates change, affects change. And with order and deliberation, he simply speaks it. And when creation receives it, then the effect is good. But you know, it's also interesting that for three parts of creation, because we could read in Genesis 1 how he would speak, God, the creation would receive it, and it would be transformed and it's good. And that's the process that takes place, not just in creation, but in our lives as well. And last week we saw that, that process take place in the service with a young man who responded to God's word and said, whatever your word says, I will do it, I submit to it. And we saw that that young man received Christ as his savior. And we saw what we were talking about in Genesis 1 take place in the life of an individual. That when creation receives God's word, it has transforming power to create. And the result is good. What a blessing last week that we saw that happen. But you know, for three different parts of creation, as you read through this, you realize that Elohim or God with the plural ending indicating they're the trinity that he went a step further than just calling it good. See, God introduces the idea of a word that you and I throw around a lot um, that we don't really even think about anymore, and that's the word blessing in chapter 1. See, he blesses the animals, and he blesses mankind, and we read it in chapter 2 that he also blessed the Sabbath day. It's interesting because the word for bless is actually similar to the word create. It's often connected to the gift of children and of the phrase be fruitful and multiply, which you know we cannot create. We can't make something out of nothing. But God has blessed us with the ability uh, to, to be fruitful and to multiply through children. And I know that God doesn't give that special gift to every person and to every couple. And I understand that. But, but I do believe that's the effect of the sin, of sin that is in the world. As God intends it, though, mankind is blessed and is meant to be fruitful and multiply. And that blessing, it can be applied to other things more than just offspring. His blessing means that he, gra- he grants his creation the means to continue his creative ability. He, he gives the grace and ability to see his work carried on. That's his blessing. Blessing means enriched beyond normal quality. Now, my wife and I, like we like drinking coffee. Most of the time, I drink a cup of coffee in the morning. I'm not like some of you uh, who drink a cup of coffee in the morning and it lasts all day because you keep refilling it. I normally drink one cup of coffee in the morning and my wife drinks coffee as well. But if we were to hold up our cups of coffee and let you examine the differences between the two, you would almost think that they're not the same thing, because they're not. See, when I say I like coffee, I drink black coffee. That's what I drink. We had best amen of the day right there. I drink black coffee, okay? I just do. My wife, though, she says she likes coffee, but what she really means is she likes creamer, And if a little bit of coffee happens to be splashed into that cup, that's okay or not. (laughs) She likes creamer, lots of creamer. And it's funny how uh, the creamer flavors these days, you know, if you've got mint and and mocha and caramel and sweet cream and sugar coma and (laughs) diabetes, you know, I I just saw that one at Walmart this week, I think. My, li- my wife likes creamer, I like coffee. You know, the difference is, coffee, it black, does its job for me. I, I need a little caffeine in the morning, I don't, I, don't, I don't need it, now I sound like an addict. I, I use a little caffeine in the morning to help myself wake up, I, I like the warmth in the morning, it kind of clears me up, opens me up a little bit in the morning. My, my wife says she likes coffee, but she really likes it enriched, we'll say. You know, that's, the word, that's what the word blessed means. It means enriched. If, if black coffee is just good, then enriched coffee with lots of creamer is blessed. That's the difference. Is that God is saying, uh, and when he says good, he, ble- he, he said good about creation, but when it came to certain parts of creation, it was enriched, there was something a little bit extra about creation when it came to the animals and when it came especially to mankind and then when it came to the Sabbath day. He didn't just look and call it good. He actually called everything very good, but he, said, but he actually takes it a step further and he blesses those things. To bless means to enrich. It's a little bit more than just the normal. I was te- we, were at, we went to the couple's activity on Friday night and in that activity, we sat across from uh, Gabe and Stephanie Adams, and my wife brought up the fact that she had bought this new Oreo called the Most Stuff Oreo, okay? And Gabe and I were texting about it last night because, I mean, it is of supernatural um, places, so I'll just say that. And he was texting me say, yes, please, because I guess they had got some. And, and Brinley asked, is there a Marshmallow? on that cookie (laughs) that's how thick the cream is you know it used to just be regular oreos and then it came out with double stuff and we we said that's just too much and then triple stuff or mega stuff and now this must be four layers of cream because it's about that thick and and i think you ought to try it you just need to but you know that's that's blessed Meaning, God didn't just stop at good with when it came to mankind and, and the Sabbath. God didn't just stop at good. He actually took the time to bless, to enrich. And what, with that part of creation, he was taking it a step further. He was saying, this is a little different than the rest of creation. This is a little different than what I've done with the other parts. I mean, true, everything that God touches is good. It is. And everything that God creates is very good. And every plan that he has is complete and fulfilled as created by him. What we see here is his complete, perfected plan. This is the way it's supposed to be. But then he takes it a step further and when he blesses it, it's even better. Now that means that every part of this creation story in Genesis 1 is as it's supposed to be. And then you come in with this extra blessing, and it means that God's granting something special. That motif of blessing and curse we see all throughout the Scripture. It begins right here. This part is different. This is the climax of creation. And when God was making mankind, this is coffee with creamer. This is the most stuffed Oreo. God had prepared the earth and made it inhabitable for mankind and this place they have to specifically now fulfill the responsibilities that God has given them. This is blessed. This is a little more than what he granted everything else. And let me remind you that everything was very good. So what you see in Genesis 1 is creation the way it's supposed to be. This is the way it It's intended. God doesn't just create and walk away. No, He creates and He wants it to be complete. He wants it to be good. And certain parts of it, He doesn't just want to be good. He wants it to be blessed. He wants it to, to carry on further than, than, it, than we think it could. This is the way it's supposed to be, folks. This week I was talking to my son, Jason, and I've always had a dream, a, that I want him to play the banjo. I have no idea why. But he has this thought in his mind that he's going to learn to play the banjo. And and I was talking to him, and he just brought it up. He said, Dad, when I start learning the banjo this year, I guess this is the year he's going to start learning it. He said, when I start learning the banjo, he's six years old. He said, you know what I'm going to do? And I'm like, what? What are you going to do with it? He said, I'm going to go back on the back porch and play it. And I said, well, why are you going to do that? He says, because that's where you play banjos. <laughs> you know, in his little mind, uh, he, is, he is illustrating Genesis, not really, but Genesis 1 in some ways, because he says that's the way it's supposed to be. If you have a banjo, you play on the back porch. That's what you do. I didn't, he didn't say anything about overalls or a, or a saw or spoons or anything, but... We'll we'll help him learn the rest of it. But you know what he was saying is that there's a way things are supposed to be. And Genesis one is the way it's supposed to be. Genesis one, God looked at this and he said, This is good. Not not just this is good, this is very good. And in parts of this, not just even very good, parts of this I want to bless. I want this to be really, really good. I want it to be enriched. I want their lives, specifically mankind. I want them to live a life that's beyond just good. I want them to live a life that's blessed. This is creation the way it's supposed to be. This is creation that is pleasing to God. The elements found in this chapter before sin sets in, they let us know what is present when God is most pleased. And I bring those things up because I ask you this question today. Do you want to please God with your life? Take a step back and ask, and this is the question many people ask, do you want to know why you exist? And it's a great question of life, right? Many people ask that, and most people ask that at some point. They say, why? Why am I here? I mean, if God created me, what does he want me to do? Uh, if God created me, how do I live a life with meaning? How am I supposed to please God? Well, Genesis 1 gives us some good insight as to how to answer that, because the elements here are good. The elements here are very good. The elements here are blessed. The elements here prove, show us the way that it's supposed to be. And as we see those pieces and apply them to our lives, I believe we can start to answer why we're here. We can start to see why or how to live a life that pleases God. The main points here that we see, and I'm going to present to you, I got this idea for the points from a commentator named Alan Ross... And then I developed them. But he said there are three elements here. uh, And I believe these three elements give us good insight into living life the way it's supposed to be. You have here God's divine plan. And then you see God's divine pattern. And then you see God's divine purpose. You see God's divine plan, his divine pattern, and a divine purpose. All three are present right here when it was blessed and good, and very good. So I'm going to look at those pieces today and then bring it back around to let us see how we fit into that in our lives today. See, we see first the divine plan when God said, let us make man. This is a plan. This is not something that just happened by accident. God specifically, deliberately said, okay, it's time, let us make man. That first phrase is interesting when he says, let us. Remember last week, we talked about Elohim, God, plural. It follows the plural form of Elohim. The Trinity came together to create, and we saw that last week as well. This is the only part of creation that we're told that God said, let us make man, let us get together and formulate this plan. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 ...are the summary of the creation of mankind. We've already read that. And then we also looked at Genesis 2, 7... ...where it says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life... ...and man became a living soul. See, man is not just a body. Man has three parts. The body, soul, and spirit. The body is the physical part of man. And that word formed... ...in in chapter 2, verse 7... ...it says the Lord God formed man... The participial use of that verb, in other words, if you take that verb and you turn it into a noun, uh, it means potter. P-O-T-T-E-R. That means one who is forming. And a potter, with his hands, he takes the clay and he forms something. The Lord God formed like a potter. The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground like a potter. You know, the, uh, that's what's happening here. Elohim. He shows the care and concern that a potter does. Whenever he took the time to create man, like a potter would make art or a vessel out of clay. You know, we don't have time to get into it today, and, and I know I couldn't do it justice anyway, but the human body is a work of art by the master potter. You know, I mean, the complexity of the human body to operate like it does. You know, that our heart keeps beating to keep us alive. That a baby would naturally... I remember the the moment with each of our children when they're first born and you wait for just a second to hear that first breath. And you don't have to show them a manual. As soon as they get slapped on the back a little bit by that nurse and you hear them take that first breath in or you hear them release their first cry. I mean, it's just a reminder that the human body is an absolute work of, God, of art by a creator God who is a potter. Amen. Listen, you're alive right now because the different systems in your body are just working automatically while you sit here. That kind of order can only point to a designer. And let the evolutionists out there say that, you know, we were a single cell organism and and we, we started to sprout a tail and legs or fins and, and we crawled out of the ooze and, and we grew a tail and we stood up or, or climbed into a tree or fell out of a tree. I don't remember the order. I don't remember. But, you know, we, we were ape-like and now we're, human, we're human-like. And let them say that. That would be like saying that a tornado goes through a junkyard and assembles a working airplane. Hey, let's even take it, let's make it even simpler than that. That would be like saying a tornado goes through a junkyard and happens to find one bolt in and one nut and screws them together. That's it. I mean, even that is outside the realm of rationale and possibility. We would say even that would be possible. And let's just go back to the basic and say, could a tornado do that? Well, I don't think so. So how can you look around and see the design and the order of the earth And not just the earth, but the human body, the incredible nature of the human body, the way that it functions, the way that it operates. How can you see that and not think that there's an existent, eternal, powerful designer behind it making all of that happen? I don't understand it. How can you assume it happened by accident? You see, today, believe it or not, God created like a potter with clay. And for us to deflect the glory that he deserves for the human body and give credit to a product of chance is an affront to an existing, powerful God with a plan. Adam was the result of that divine plan. The triune God specifically, deliberately, carefully made him. The physical matter from which Adam's body came was the dust of the ground. The word Adam literally means taken out of the ground. But Adam was more than just a body. See, as incredible as the human body is, God's plan was not just to make a body, because man also has a soul. And that's the part of us that animates the body, that's the true person. Our personalities, our our individual traits... Come from our soul, who we are. But even just having a soul doesn't completely separate us from the rest of creation because something animates your dog. Your dog has a personality. Your dog, it's not a person, but something animates that that dog. There's life there more than just a body. So what separates us? Well, Peter says nothing separates us. I read a story this week that Peter says that we need to stop calling our pets pets and call them companions because now we're equal. I mean, it's just incredible that they would elevate creation to the level of mankind when you stop to realize what God did for mankind, how God carefully formed mankind. According to verse 26, we are meant to rule over creation. We are meant to have dominion over the animal kingdom. And I'm not devaluing an animal or your pet at all today. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just saying that God blessed you and made you different and you are above the animals that you see. When God breathed that that breath of life into that human body in the next chapter, something was different about Adam. He became a living soul. That living part is the part that makes us like God. And I'm not saying we are like God in that we're holy or we're perfect. I'm saying that we bear some of his traits. We can bear traits like God. God breathed. Into that body, it was God's breath, God's inspiration. And no other part of creation can make that claim. When God breathed his life into us, it gave us the capacity to relate to God. Mankind is a body. Mankind is a soul. But mankind also, we have a spirit. And that spirit is the part of us that relates to God. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, "...and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly." And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not just a body, we're not just alive. We have a spirit that is either dead or alive. And that spirit, that part of us, relates to God. God created man to relate to him and have fellowship with him. I mean, we know just a few chapters later, a couple chapters later, chapter three, that sin came and our natural, our natu- natural condition now is to be dead in trespasses and sins. Not a dead body, not a dead soul, but a dead spirit, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Our spirit before salvation is dead. The part of us that should relate to God cannot. 1 Corinthians says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. That part of us has to be quickened. It has to be made alive before we can have a relationship with God the way that it was supposed to be at the very beginning. You have a living soul Folks that will live for eternity somewhere. And if your spirit is not alive, then you will spend that eternity separated from God. But when we trust Christ's payment on the cross for our sins, our spirit is quickened, it's made alive, and we can have a relationship with God. See, that was part of God's divine plan. When He made man a living soul, He didn't create man just to be another one of the animals. Or just a residing creation. No, it, like everything else, he created creation to be inhabited by man. He created man as a companion for himself in fellowship. That was the divine plan. That's, what, that's how it was supposed to be from the beginning. That's, that's where you play the banjo. That's the way it's supposed to be. So we see the divine plan, but then we also see the divine pattern. See, God made man, he said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Humankind, male and female, were created in the image of God. Human life was similar to the way that God is. And I don't know all the way that that works, I'm not even completely sure I wrap my mind around it, but all I do know is that we are different than the rest of creation, when he told the animals and the tree, you know, he gave the, uh, the order to nature, to his creation, to reproduce, the trees would reproduce through seed. And they looked at the fowls of the air and the fish in the sea. He said, be fruitful, multiply, have after your own kind. And then the beasts and the, the creeping things on the earth were to be fruitful, multiply, re- reproduce after their own kind. But listen, we were created after God's kind. In the way that an animal bears offspring, we are the offspring of God. We bear his image. The divine pattern is that we are like God in many ways. And and not just physical, because at this point, God is a spirit. So I don't believe that it's the physical part of man that he's saying in, in my image. No, that in breathing, it gave us a moral, intellectual, and spiritual capability. We have certain communicable traits that we got from God that were transferable to us. Attributes in that for things like we're volitional and that we can make decisions. We, we're moral in that we have this inherent sense of right and wrong. And by the way, that's another proof of design in that you look at cultures all around the world that aren't connected in any way. And there are basic senses of right and wrong in those cultures that are just part of being human. Is it, there's a universal image of God that we all bear when it comes to morality. When it comes to creativity, we can't make something out of nothing, but we can create from what we have. We're relational. From the beginning, God wanted man, God and man, to walk in the garden and have fellowship. But we are not his pet. We were created to be his companions. The image of God in us allows us to function in the ways like fellowship and service and obedience to God and imitation of God. To be human is a high calling. Don't miss that. To be human is a high calling. See, not because we have value in ourselves, but because we were made in the image and the likeness of God. Whatever you believe about human life, know this for sure, because we were made in the image of God, every human life has value. And we could talk about this for days, and we could talk about the unborn. Those babies who have not been born yet, and people say they're not even a person, it's not a a child or a human being yet, if they haven't been born. And even now we've got some legislator Laters out there saying that even once they're born, if there's something, then you can still uh, make a decision at that point to terminate or keep that child. And if they read Genesis 1, nobody would believe that abortion is okay because God breathed His breath of life. He made man in His own image. And therefore, every soul, even a baby inside of a womb, has value to the Creator. The unborn. I think about the unlearned. I think about those who may not have much or they come from a poor background or or they they don't have much education. And we have to be mindful of the fact that no matter where they're from or what they can do or how well they can think, wherever they're from and whoever they are, they have value to a Creator God Because they bear the image of God. I don't care the color of someone's skin. It doesn't matter what what environment they grew up in. It doesn't matter their nationality or the clothes that they wear. Every soul is a valuable creation. As a bearer of God's image, they have value. It doesn't matter the gender, which, by the way, let me just say this, that God created two and said it is very good and blessed. Your family name, your background. It doesn't matter if you've sinned against God in a great way. I'm not saying it doesn't matter to God. It does matter, but it doesn't matter in terms of making you valuable or not to God. How do you know? Well, Christ died for the ungodly. The image we bear makes us valuable to God. And it flies in the face of common belief systems like communism. It says, you know, man is an animal. Man is just a sociological creature. There is no God. Therefore, men can be dealt with like nameless, non-valuable life forms. Communism. You know, we would stand against something like that. And yet we uh, we have congressional leaders, leaders in our country that are moving us in that direction. Do they even understand what the end of that is? That, value, that souls don't have value. People don't have value. They're just nameless, faceless life forms, and they can be treated as such. You know, there was a movement, obviously, we all understand the movement of, of the Nazis and, and uh, the neo-Nazis even now. That man is evolving, and through genetics, there can be a super race that is developed and rules the world, and they they believe that, and they believe therefore that those that weren't involved in that process didn't have any value, and they were therefore expendable. Those that believe in materialism, they say, well, since man's just the highest form of the animal's, with no eternal future, just live for the here and now, none of it matters in the end. And you can believe in those kinds of systems all that you want, but they provide no context and therefore no meaning or value to the human life. And people say all the time, well, God and religion have done more to to, uh, divide people and and, um, they've done more to cause war than anything else. I'm telling you, in organized, organized religion, but listen, if every person held mankind in the same high esteem, As God the creator, we would have worldwide peace. To say that religion diminishes the human life is to not even understand the care and attention that the potter placed inside that body when he created Adam and then breathed into him the breath of life. Every person bears the image of God. And therefore, every soul matters to God. There's a divine plan, let us. There's a divine pattern, make man in our image after our likeness. And that leads to the third point, which is the divine purpose. He says, let them have dominion. See, that term dominion means to rule. In what ways were men to rule? Well, they were to represent God to the earth. Take care of God's business on the earth. As man was made in the image of God, Uh, mankind is the ruler or overseer of things on earth. As made in the image of God, they were to make sure that God's purposes were fulfilled. As made in the image of God, only man is capable of fulfilling those responsibilities. And I know sin has changed the look of our responsibilities, and, but the truths of this passage are still the same. We still have the responsibility to fulfill God's purposes as his image bearers. Adam's job was to have dominion over the earth. He and Eve were to represent God. Part of their dominion was to place a high value on reproduction and creating more image bearers to carry on with God's purposes. They were to make sure God's work continued as God originally intended. They were, and they were then to reproduce others that did the same thing. Their task was to watch over the things that God created. And what was important to God was to be important to them. It's easy, right? Well, that's all we have to do. Except for Genesis 3. See, because of sin, this task is no, it no longer is, is easy. It looks different. We no longer simply rule over the earth. The earth is now cursed. And not all men follow God. Satan has a foothold on this planet. And it's different now. But listen, folks, what I want you to get to today is that our priority is still the same God still has a desire for his purposes to be fulfilled on the earth, and he expects his representatives to fulfill it. His his plan and his pattern and his purpose help us to understand the role that we play as mankind and followers of God. And we still have two responsibilities based on this passage. We are still to bear God's image and reproduce others who bear God's image. That's what Adam and Eve were to do bear God's image, and reproduce others, if I could get the word out today, reproduce others who do the same. See, that's the way it's supposed to be. If we were to able to just scale everything back and go right back to the beginning and see what God wanted mankind to do in the beginning, it starts with bear God's image. And I know that sin makes it harder, but we still exist to represent God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, as a human being, God made you to bear his image. And you are of value to God as his image bearer. He has a divine purpose for you, for all mankind, including you. He valued enough to create you. He valued enough to give you life. He valued you enough to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that you could fulfill this original function of fellowship and representation on planet Earth. He's proven how much He values you as a soul that will exist for the rest of eternity. So my question is, how much do you value Him? See, consider all that God has poured into you as a person. Consider all the things that He's done for you, all the ways that He has blessed you. Life. Breath. Breath. The opportunity to fellowship with Him. The opportunity to have eternal life. Eternity in heaven. All of these ways that He values you. And sin may have twisted that up in your mind, but it's still true for you. He valued you enough to sacrifice His Son. He values you enough to offer you eternal life. Do you value Him enough to receive it? Do you value God enough to give Him your life, Christian, today? Do you value God enough to bear His image? Because yes, sin came. And and yes, things are different. But Romans 8 says that we are to be conformed to the image of His Son. Hebrews talks about how Jesus is the express image of His Father. So He bears God's image. We are to bear the son's image. He gave us a living, walking, breathing example of the way that we're supposed to live and bear God's image. We look to Jesus. That's the image of God. And that's who we're supposed to follow. My question though today is, if that's the way it's supposed to be, if our lives are supposed to represent God, how is your life doing in that responsibility? Are you representing God at work? Do you bear God's image Parents, do you bear God's image in front of your children? Husbands and wives, do you bear God's image in the way that you speak to each other? Christian, do you bear God's image when it comes to how you serve, the way that you spend your week? Because remember, he has responsibilities. Our responsibility is to fulfill his purposes as we live and serve and follow him. Are you doing that? Do you bear God's image? Do you have the fruits of this spirit in your life? Because that's the way it's supposed to be. And that answers the question why we're here. We're here to bear God's image. And if you're not doing that, no wonder you're not fulfilled. No wonder you're not content. Because it's only when we do that, that it's very good and blessed. When we don't, we're not blessed. We cannot please God unless we bear His image. But the second part of Adam and Eve's responsibility is found in that they were to reproduce others who bear God's image. See, now the work is to find those who don't bear God's image and tell them how they can. You know what, parents, moms, and dads, it starts at home. God created us in his image, then he gave us children. Blessed us, those of us who have children, I'm thankful for them. But I have a responsibility to those children to help them bear God's image. That's their ultimate fulfillment and purpose in life. And I can raise them to be good ball players, And I can raise them to be good musicians. And I can raise them to get a full ride scholarship. And go anywhere to school they want and get the best job you could dream of. And make all the money in the world that they could. And support me the rest of my life. And I wouldn't mind it either. But if I raise them and they miss the one major point of their life to bear the image of God, then I've not done my job as a dad who follows God. So we have the responsibility not just to bear God's image, but to find those who don't and help them to see how they can. And it doesn't just apply in our homes because we live in a world all around us every day are people that were meant to be image bearers, but they don't bear God's image anymore. God created humans to bear his image, but sin has marred that image. And those of us who have been redeemed, we have the responsibility to go find the ones who need that image restored and tell them how they can again. So my other question to you today is not only do you bear God's image, but are you reproducing yourself in others that bear God's image? Not just at home, but everywhere you go. Christian, you have a responsibility to do God's work. The way it's supposed to be is this: that we work every day tirelessly, tirelessly, it's on our minds all the time, it's on our hearts all the time, to find those who are on their way to eternity separated from God in hell, and we show them how they can bear the image of God again, how they can find fulfillment in life again. We could answer the question for the people around us when they're saying, "Why do I exist?" What's my purpose? Why am I here? Well, if we could show them that God wants them to bear his image in their lives, we could give them purpose again. But every day we let people walk by us. Every day that we see people that, that we don't know who they are, and we don't know if they're saved, we don't know if they go to church, and we walk right by doing our business. And we don't reach out to those who don't bear God's image. Just a few weeks ago, a young lady here in Sioux Falls at the Walmart was abducted. And that young lady was found, her body was found lying in a ditch. Just a couple days later, because some monster, she's 20 years old, I think, young lady, I don't remember how old she was. She wasn't very old. But you know, I've been to that Walmart many times. I wouldn't be surprised if I walked past her. Because I think she might have worked there. Either way, she was at Walmart, and I've been to that Walmart. And you know what caused me to start thinking? If I've ever crossed paths with her, and I didn't tell her about Jesus Christ, shame on me. Because I have two primary responsibilities. To bear God's image, and to help other people bear God's image. And I don't know where that young lady is, and I don't know her her eternal uh, condition. I don't know. But folks, we are failing in our task as image bearers if we don't have, have a heart to find others that need to bear God's image again. So are you fulfilling these responsibilities? Because this is the way it's supposed to be. We're to bear God's image and take the gospel so that God's image can be restored on every human life. So let's go back to those questions. Do you want to please God? Yes. Then you must know the answer to then questions like, do you want to know why you exist? Well, you, um, you're supposed to bear, bear God's image. You're supposed to reproduce yourself and others to do the same. You want to please God? Well, bear God's image. Reproduce others to do the same. So how do you bear God's image? You receive his son. You know him. And you live for him. You do those things and God will see you in his divine plan, in his divine pattern, in his divine purpose. And when God looks at your life both now and at the end, you know what he'll say if we live according to his divine plan and pattern and purpose? When he looked at creation, what did he say? Is very good. You want to live a life that God calls very good? Bear his image. And find others. Reproduce others in yourself that do the same. So that when you stand before God, he says, very good. It's time to go back to the way it's supposed to be. This is why we were created. Bear God's image. Reproduce others who do the same. Let's stand.